welcome to Swarthmore Presbyterian Church's podcast. This is your host, Alex Evangelista. We are delighted you are here, and don't forget to like, subscribe, and share our podcast. You are now listening to a podcast recorded for December 5th, 2021, titled Unassuming Characters by Reverend Joy Shin. Would you please pray with me? Loving God, you have so made us that we cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. Give us a hunger for your word, and in that food, satisfy our daily need through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Each year, I am interested to know what new words are being added to the English language. Did you know that the Oxford English Dictionary adds new words, phrases, and meanings to the English language four times a year? My understanding is that this December it will add hundreds of new words and phrases. Scanning web content according to automated search criteria A special research program collects, on average, 150 million words in current English use each month. If we were to compare year to year the number of new words being added to the English language, I wonder what the rate of increase would be. I would guess that given how rapidly technology proliferates communication, The rate at which new words have been added to the English language has dramatically accelerated in recent years. Not surprisingly, some of the words added to the dictionary in 2021 are essential worker, social distance, and anti-vaxxer. In addition to a host of words arising from our experience of the pandemic, is a proliferation of words having to do with the climate. Climate crisis, extreme weather, and keitia kitanga, which means stewardship or guardianship, especially of the natural resources of an area or location. With the help of expert consultants, the dictionary teams of the United States and the United Kingdom select a word of the year, In 2021, the word of the year is vax. According to an article in the New York Times, while the word vaccine more than doubled in frequency, the John Tier word vax, meaning shot or jab, jumped in its frequency of appearance 72 times more than it appeared last year. Until now, I have never used the word vax. Apparently, in order to be selected as the word of the year, a word has to be deemed by judges as meeting two criteria. First, to reflect the ethos, mood, or preoccupations of that particular year. And second, to have lasting potential as a word of cultural significance. That's why... When well-chosen, these words of the year tell us something about our ever-changing reality. They tell us about new phenomena that we never needed to name before. In some cases, words that have been in use 
circulating for years may take some time to land. And once they land in the dictionary, it is as though the phenomena or realities to which they refer somehow take on greater legitimacy. It shouldn't be surprising then that during this Advent season, when the church is preparing for the coming of Christ, there is a proliferation of words used to usher in a radically new reality. Trying to grasp the significance of Christ for Israel, the gospel writers drew on the words of prophets to call Christ wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, and prince of peace. As Zechariah finally grasps the stunning reality envisioned by the prophets, at the birth of his son John the Baptist, he sings of a child, his child, who will prepare the way for the coming of Christ. The words of his song did not come to him right away. You might remember that when nine months earlier the angel Gabriel had appeared to Zechariah and told him that his wife Elizabeth would bear a son, and they were to name him John, and that he would be filled with the Holy Spirit to turn many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, to make the people ready to receive the Lord. It was too much for Zechariah. He was dismissive of this dream. So as Luke tells us, for a season, Zechariah lost his ability to speak and to hear. Only after his son John was born and was now to be named did Zechariah grasp the vision, the significance of what was here taking place. And words flowed out of his mouth, words that blessed God for remembering his people and for preparing them for liberation in this way. Liberation doesn't happen overnight. Sometimes it takes a season of time in which we must wait, watch, and wonder, rather than hear and speak, to move us from an unbelieving and dismissive state of mind to a readiness to grasp and grapple with the Word of God. Christ is the Word of God. What do we mean when we say this? that Christ is the word of God? What value does this add? Why not just say that he is the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, Messiah, and Prince of Peace? Wouldn't these political titles of Christ capture and convey the political, economic, and social solution that the people so desperately want? In the Bible, we discover an ancient insight into what is an absolutely necessary foundational condition for the possibility of true liberation, true emancipation. Only when everyone has been equipped with and empowered by the use of words, reading, writing, speaking, and hearing, will we be able to repair and rebuild a city from ruins be freed from oppression, be saved from one's enemies, and be emancipated. In the Bible and throughout history, 
language plays an indispensable foundational role in liberation. As I was growing up, from time to time, I would hear stories from my parents about the years when Koreans were under the thumb of Japanese occupation and rule. I heard about how the economy, natural resources, and labor of Korea were all put to use by and for Japan. More than these offenses, however, I heard about what it was like not to be permitted to speak, read, and write in Korean at school and in public. Books in the Korean language were confiscated. A whole generation of Korean children learned how to read and write only in Japanese. And the adults who had never learned Japanese became voiceless and powerless. Compared to all the other deprivations and coercions under Japanese occupation, it seems that this was the worst, because taking away one's language is the most fundamental way for a people to be treated always as objects and not as subjects. When Korea was liberated from Japanese rule, my father was in the fifth grade, he remembers how quickly the new Korean government reinstated the Korean language in the schools. But unfortunately, because under Russia's influence, communism was already taking a stronghold in what would soon become North Korea, the language they were taught was rife with communist political ideology. The ideologically oriented curriculum and pedagogy would not allow the North Korean people to experience the liberation that could have been possible. Throughout history, whenever major political, social, and economic change takes place, language becomes one of the first arenas of reform. Brazilian-born educator and philosopher Paulo Freire understood this. He knew that language plays a crucial role in constructing our understandings of reality. Dedicating his life to literacy education in countries that bore centuries of European domination, Freire became known for building a social, political, and cultural revolution made of words that shape the world. In 1974, when the Portuguese withdrew from Guinea-Bissau, a country on the West African coast, 90% of the adult population was illiterate. During its 500 years of under colonial rule, Guinea-Bissau had only 14 university graduates. Facing the enormous task of educating a newly liberated citizenry, the new government invited Paulo Freire to collaborate with its educators. His book, Pedagogy and Process, lays out the philosophical and pedagogical commitments undergirding his work. One of those philosophical commitments was that language is more than mechanical. It is political, social, economic, religious, and cultural. He wrote, 
we have never understood literacy education of adults as a thing in itself, as simply learning the mechanics of reading and writing, but rather as an empowering act directly related to production, health, to the regular system of instruction, to the overall plan for the society still to be realized. He conceived of language through a lens of liberation, and through the lens of liberation, he understood that language is related to citizenship in its totality. In our own history and on our own soil, we too have undergone social revolutions driven by ideals of liberation. Professor of English and American Studies, Christopher Hager, has written a profoundly moving book entitled Word by Word, Emancipation and the Act of Writing. Drawing upon the primary sources of letters and other records written by former slaves in the United States, Dr. Hager explores the period of emancipation in American history, which he points out has received too little attention. While these written sources do give us some insight into how former slaves experienced emancipation, Dr. Hager wants to make a further point that the countless accumulated hours former slaves spent seated at tables composing their thoughts, setting pens to paper, constituted a central part of the process of emancipation. Learning to write was no less central than the time they spent migrating from plantations to cities, looking for work, looking for family members, and building religious and political institutions. For these newly emancipated slaves, the American Constitution and the Bible often served as primers, sometimes copying and sometimes commenting on their contents these African Americans engaged in more than a mechanical act of writing. They engaged in acts of learning, acts of protest, acts of inventing, and above all, acts of reconstituting themselves and our country. In its wisdom, ancient Israel and the early church knew that true liberation, the kind of liberation that involves the reconstitution of ourselves and our cities, overhauls of politics and economics, privilege and power, necessarily requires the equipment and empowerment of liberating words. Not just the same old words spoken by the same people, Rather, words spoken by people who haven't spoken before or whose voices we haven't heard before. True liberation requires treating each other always as subjects, not as objects. It requires learning old words with evolving meanings and creating new words that speak of new phenomena and new possibilities. I think it is true that the new words we use tell us something about the times we live in and the things that preoccupy us. With the pandemic working its way through the Greek alphabet, today we're hearing a lot about the Omicron variant. What are the words and whose words do we need to hear and grapple with? 
if we want to realize the kind of society that God is redeeming, it will not happen overnight. Like Zechariah, who finally has caught on to the dream offered him by God, we are dreaming of things not yet realized. For cities to be rebuilt and ruins to be raised up, for the forgiveness of sins and the salvation of all peoples. But this dream will not be realized overnight. It will take time. It will take sacrifice. It will take all of us. Let me end with a story I once heard. It was a particularly hot summer day, and a mother was sitting on the deck watching her four-year-old playing in a kiddie pool. Hot as it was, she was sipping on a cup of lemonade. Her son had been learning about germs, and yet he wanted some of the cool lemonade in his mama's cup. Not yet having the terminology just right, he asked her, Mama, if I drink from your cup, would I catch your dreams? Of course, he meant to say germs. But it got his mother thinking. Oh, if only you could catch my dreams by drinking from my cup. In just a moment, Christ will be gathering us at the table where we come time and time again to catch Christ's dreams. And he will ask us, are you able to drink from my cup? Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this podcast, recorded for December 5th, 2021, titled, Unassuming Characters, by Reverend Joy Shin. We'll see you soon, and may the peace of Christ be with you.